wickedness comes from his people. Well, Habakkuk, uh, most likely from Judah, lived and prophesied in a time when Judah was both morally corrupt, excuse me, uh, morally corrupt and spiritually corrupt. Uh, he's thought to have been a contemporary of Nahum and actually would have lived to see uh, Nahum's prophecy come, come true, Assyria, the fall of Assyria. At this point in Judah's history, they, like many other nations, had kings that ruled them. Uh, but all of these kings, except one, King Josiah, uh, were wicked kings, kings that, that drew them away from the living God. At the time that Habakkuk was written, uh, Judah had, had gone, gotten so bad that they had turned to worshiping Baal. They were doing things like offering child sacrifices, uh, and they were just, yeah, totally wicked and corrupt. Uh, they were doing things like dedicating uh, animals to sun gods, and, and, and all the while God's temple was falling into ruin. Uh, friends, Judah, uh, the remnant of God's people, was now far from God. Uh, so what does God feel about wickedness and injustice of his own people, his covenant people, the ones whom he brought out of Egypt, uh, the ones whom he guided through the wilderness, the ones whom he protected from countless enemies. What does God do? How will he respond when his own beloved children turn away from him and begin to worship false gods? Hebrews 12, verses 5 and 6. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So I am a relatively new dad. I have two boys, ages four and two, and these boys are very active. I love to have fun with them, run around, wrestle with them. A little confession time here. One thing that I struggle with doing is, is disciplining them. Uh, just a few days ago, I was confessing this to Chelsea, uh, how hard it is for me to, to discipline these boys. I just, I really just don't enjoy it. Uh, but what she's helped me to realize is that as much as the process pains me, the process of discipline pains me, it's actually loving to them and loving for them. Uh, you see, God has given us children to steward in this season. And among many things, as parents, we are tasked with helping them to learn things like obedience and authority. And for me, as a parent, to neglect one of the main tools, discipline, that I have to help my child grow, it's, it's unloving. So if I, as an earthly father, can see the good in disciplining my children, how much more will our heavenly father see and do so in our lives? Friends, Judah is off the rails, and God loved them far too much to let them continue in their wicked ways. And as we'll see in this dialogue, Habakkuk actually agrees with God. Uh, discipline, correction is needed. But what he can't wrap his mind around is how it would come. So the main idea for our time today, for those taking notes, is the same truth that Habakkuk needed and the same truth that we need to remember. It's this, the Lord disciplines his children in his time and in his way. The Lord disciplines his children in his time and in his way. Friends, Habakkuk had a problem. And although our problems aren't the same as his problem, there's still a lot that we can learn in how he handled it, both good and bad. 
And as we consider our text today, we'll be examining Habakkuk's situation and hopefully learning some things from his good and bad theology, or what I'll call today his mixed theology. So for those taking notes, our three points. Point one will be Habakkuk's mixed, mixed theology, part one. So that'll be verses one to four. Now point two will be the Lord's unexpected answer, verses five to 11. And then point three, Habakkuk's mixed theology, part two, verses 12 to, chap- to chapter two, verse one. So starting with point one, Habakkuk's mixed theology, part one. I'll read, us, read for us verses one to four. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. Uh, For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. So like, like the book of Nahum, the book of Habakkuk is an oracle, or a word from the Lord. Uh, this oracle came to Habakkuk in a vision, and this vision was written down. Uh, right away, in these first four verses, in Habakkuk's plea or, or complaint, we see him getting some things right and getting some things wrong, some good theology and some bad theology. Uh, now for those who might be wondering, hold on, he's a, he's a prophet. How, does, how can he have a mixed theology? Now, don't forget that uh, prophets were not sinless people. Uh, they too had their shortcomings. They too were broken. And as is always the case, the Lord loves to use broken people for his glory. Starting with Habakkuk's good theology, things that we want to learn and we should learn and adopt in our thinking about God, if we haven't already. So first, Habakkuk takes his concerns to the Lord. Uh, the situation was dire. Judah, God's people, had forgotten their creator. Help was not going to come from within. Uh, Corruption marked their government, and unbelief marked their faith. So what does Habakkuk do? He goes to God. He communicates with God. He prays to the Lord. Uh, You know, we can assume this is not the first time uh, that he's pleading with the Lord. We see the question in verse 2, how long shall I cry for help? Uh, Habakkuk is persistent in prayer. Friends, the prophet is a good example for us in this. Uh, God is not overwhelmed by your concerns or struggle. He doesn't get annoyed when his children rely on him. Uh, Because of his son, Jesus Christ, his ear is always open to us, and he delights to hear from his people. Uh, Whatever your burden, big or small, whatever your trial, difficult or not so difficult, go to God in prayer. As the old hymn says, have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? Uh, We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. In going to God, the prophet also appeals to God's covenant name, Yahweh. Uh, we We saw this in Nahum as well. The all caps, Lord, uh, meant to convey this immediacy, uh, the Lord's presence. He is near to those who call on him. And Habakkuk understood this. Uh, The Lord is near, and so he goes to the Lord in his time of distress. Friends, Habakkuk's plea is also honest. His plea is also honest. Verses 3b, or the second half of 3, 
in verses 4b, second half of 4, says destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. And then in verse 4, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Uh, Friends, these are are desperate times. And Habakkuk is explicit about the problem at hand. Likewise, uh, when we pray, uh, we too should pray honestly. And it's not because we're informing God of something that he didn't already know. He's he's entirely sovereign, right? We can't provide insight to a God who already knows everything. Uh, God instructs us to come to him for our good. uh, Because pouring out our hearts in trust is part of how he changes our hearts. Even if he doesn't immediately change our circumstances. So, Habakkuk's good theology is on display here. Uh, But it doesn't take a seminary degree to know that he's also off in some areas. Uh, Habakkuk has taken a few correct facts, and he's drawn some faulty conclusions. And sadly, we often do the same. Uh, Still in verses 1 to 4, let's consider some of Habakkuk's bad theology, things that we don't want to emulate. So look back at verses 2 and 3. Habakkuk rattles off these three questions. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you not hear? Or or cry to you violence and you will not save? Uh, Why do you make me see iniquity or or injustice? And and why do you idly look at wrong? I want to be clear here. The heart of Habakkuk's plea is actually good. He he wants justice. He, He knows God to be a just God. And he is perplexed that this just God is allowing injustice to run rampant amongst his chosen people. So yes, Uh, Take your confusion to the Lord. When you don't understand, ask the one who knows all things. But look look at what Habakkuk is implying about the Lord here. Uh, You will not hear, uh, will not save. Why do you, the Lord, look idly at wrong? Is Habakkuk being vulnerable? Yes. But is the character of God informing his prayer? Uh, Not entirely. No doubt, Habakkuk knows God hears and God saves and cannot look at wrong. Otherwise, why would he even go to God in prayer? But what he knows doesn't lead him to the correct conclusions about God. You know, often when trials and temptations are heaviest, we are tempted to forget who God is. But that is exactly when we need to remember most. God, not here. God not save his people? God idly look at wrong? Uh, What we know about God must inform how we pray to God. Friends, God hears. Psalm 34, 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Uh, Friends, God saves. Psalm 20, verse 6, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven and with the saving might of his right hand. Uh, Friends, God is not idle. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Christian prayer remembers who we're praying to. The prophet concludes his complaint in verse 4. He summarizes, God, because you don't hear and aren't saving and idly looking at wrong, 
Therefore, the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. Habakkuk, the prophet, who serves a just God, would have been very familiar with the Lord's words in Exodus 34, uh, 6 and 7, where the Lord says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Friends, the prophet was so blinded by his trials, he couldn't clearly see the God who orchestrated the very trial he was in. He was so distracted by his present circumstances, he had forgotten the Lord's past faithfulness. You know, those who see only the short term likely miss the majority of what God is doing in any given circumstance. In Habakkuk's case, his, his short-sightedness led him to forget key truths about God, causing him to question rather than draw confidence from who he is. Uh, which brings us to our second point, the Lord's unexpected answer. This is uh, verses 5 to 11. I'll read for us. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Uh, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. You know, instead of answering Habakkuk's exact question, in essence, why the Lord tolerates this evil, God addresses the point of the prophet's complaint. Habakkuk wanted to know what God was going to do about the wickedness in Judah. And so the Lord uh, graciously responds in two ways. He reveals his sovereign plan, and he describes the very tool he will use to carry out this plan. So, y'all, as I studied the passage this week, I found myself chuckling at this point of the passage. You know, Habakkuk in verse 2 to 4 had basically been pouting, right, to the Lord. He was, he was stomping his feet, do something, Lord. You know, why are you letting this happen to your people? And I imagine the Lord turning to Habakkuk, calmly and gently letting him know, oh, dear Habakkuk, oh, I am doing something. And it's the last thing that you would expect. Verse 5, look among the nations. What's not apparent in our English Bibles here is that the Lord's answer is actually not directed uh, strictly and solely at Habakkuk, but instead it's directed towards a, a group. Uh, some commentators suggest that this is the Lord speaking to all of Judah, uh, essentially calling out the entire people group. Open your eyes, Judah. Uh, wonder and be amazed. Uh, friends, I'm sure many of you have heard this quote, but I'm going to say it again. The Lord is doing 10,000 things in, in you 
and around you, and you might be aware of three. God is not limited to time and space. He is not consumed by your circumstances and trials. He sees them. As a matter of fact, he sends them. You know, the Lord sometimes works in ways that we least expect. God plainly states to Habakkuk, I am raising up the Chaldeans. So Chaldeans was another name for the Babylonians. All of the vengeance and all of the destruction that we covered the last three weeks, this was the nation that would enact that vengeance and justice. Not only did the Babylonians wipe out the wicked Assyrians, but the Lord was about to use them to judge his very own people. Over a 20-year period, Babylon would take out the Ninevites and then deport all of the Jews back to Babylon. So let's not move too fast. There is a detail here in the beginning of verse 6 that will leave, we see leaves Habakkuk and, and maybe even some of us a little confused. The Lord says, I am raising up the Chaldeans. The Lord is the one who is setting this plan in motion. He is the one who is preparing this juggernaut of a nation to come and destroy all in its path. God is not only sovereign over his people, but also the enemies of his people. Even our enemies, friends, are, are subject to God's sovereignty. He goes on to say, I am doing a work in your day that you wouldn't believe it if told. Friends, this would be a display of the Lord's justice, a clear display of his wrath toward the wicked, a display that Habakkuk never saw coming. But friends, there's an even greater display of God's justice and wrath poured out that the world did not anticipate, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, it wasn't just Judah and Babylon that were wicked in God's sight. The Bible is clear that there is no one who is righteous. No one does good, not even one. A sin has tarnished all of creation, and because of our wickedness, beginning with Adam, we have all become objects of God's wrath. He is completely just God, and he must completely judge sin. Uh, but instead of pouring out his wrath on mankind, he poured it out on his only beloved Son, Jesus Christ. On the cross, Christ endured the full wrath of God the Father for sin. He took the punishment that sinful people like you and I deserve. He died, and three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating death, uh, proving that his sacrifice was indeed sufficient to pay for sins, the sins of all who would repent and trust in him. Uh, church family, it is for this very reason that the Lord's discipline of us is for our good. His wrath has already been poured out on Jesus. From the moment you placed your trust in Jesus, you were no longer an enemy, but instead a friend. All of our trials and all of our suffering are for our sanctification. They are meant to draw us closer and make us more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. But for those here this morning who have not turn from their sins, and put their trust in Jesus. Let this serve as both a warning and an invitation. The Bible is clear that there is no neutral ground in this life. Mankind is either living for the Lord or in rebellion against him. And for those who continue in their rebellion, 
there is a wrath reserved for them for eternity. But God, out of his abundant mercy and grace, has made a way for the wicked to become righteous. By repenting of sin and trusting in the finished work of Christ, the Lord told Habakkuk that he was doing a work that he wouldn't believe. Friends, in Christ, a work has been done that you must believe. Don't delay. Turn from your sins and put your trust in Jesus. The Lord spends the remainder of this section describing just how mighty Babylon is. Uh, This description can be summarized in three categories. The the Lord talks about their conduct, uh, their character, and their motivation. So beginning with this idea of of Babylon's conduct, how they acted. Uh, We see this allusion to speed in a few different places. Uh, Verse 6, they were hasty. Uh, Verse 8, their horses are swifter than leopards. Again in verse 8, their horsemen fly like eagles. Uh, Verse 11, they sweep by like the wind. Uh, Part of the Babylonian strategy uh, to conquer these, these different nations was to move so fast that these nations had no time to respond that to, their, to uh, Babylon. Horses and chariots allowed them to, to move from place to place, uh, su- surprising their enemies. Uh, look at the first phrase in verse 10. Uh, they pile up earth and take it. Uh, this is referring to something called siege mounds. It was a, a signature Babylonian uh, war strategy. These ramps that they would build made of dirt they somehow made them mobile. They put them on wheels and, and, uh, and wheeled them up to the walls of these enemy uh, camps and really quickly were up and inside these camps, gaining ground on, these, on their enemies very quickly. Uh, next, the Lord summarizes their character as violent. The Babylonians were a violent people, verse 9. Uh, they all come for violence, all their faces forward. The Babylonians, they were, they were bent on violence. They were resolved both in body and mind to wipe out any who stood in their way. Uh, The second half of verse 6, they marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. They were feared by all for their ability to capture and plunder and then intentionally rip apart and deport families. Uh, The result of a Babylonian attack, it wouldn't simply be just a loss of land, but instead also a, a loss of identity. Friends, after an attack, it was as if that nation never existed to begin with. And this would be the case for Judah as well. Lastly, the Lord describes their motivation. The Babylonians were uh, consumed by conquest. Verse 7b, the second half, their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. In other words, uh, they were their own law. No moral compass, uh, no stricken conscience, They submitted to to no higher power. Uh, This idea is depicted in verse 10. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. Uh, They laugh at every fortress. Kings, rulers, fortresses, all all of these were meant to relay the idea of authority, formality, power, dignity. Yeah, the Babylonians saw all of them as a joke. And then look at the last words that the Lord uses to describe them in verse 11. Uh, guilty men, whose own might is their God. At this point in history, the Babylonian Empire dominated the known world. Uh, they were, in a sense, you could say, at the top of the food chain. Uh, but unlike other nations, they didn't dedicate their success to any God. Uh, they dedicated their success to themselves, their military, uh, their might. They worshipped their own strength 
and power the way other nations worshiped false gods. So my question to you is where in your life are you tempted to rely on your own strength? Is it your work, parenting, school, relationships? You know, one way to find out is by examining what areas of your life go without prayer. Where prayerlessness exists, self-reliance thrives. Where prayerlessness exists, self-reliance thrives. For the Babylonians, they relied on their might. Yet history tells us that even their kingdom eventually came to an end. A church family rely on nothing and no one more than you rely on God. After hearing all the Lord just said, I, I imagine this is when Habakkuk's jaw hit the ground. Right? The God of Israel was intentionally preparing a wicked nation to conquer his own people. The God of justice was about to use a people who knew nothing of justice to enact justice on his behalf. Friends, Habakkuk wanted reform, but he didn't want it this way. The Lord disciplines his children in his time and in his way. And this brings us to point three. Habakkuk's mixed theology part two, verses 12 to 17. I'll read for us. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his nets. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his nets and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is good. Is he then to keep on emptying his nets and mercilessly killing nations forever? Habakkuk's good and bad theology continues. Uh, we begin to see that the prophet has heard the Lord and even begins, begun to, to learn some things about how to interact with the Lord in prayer. So let's begin with the good. Uh, instead of starting off with complaint, like he did in verse 2, and this time he begins with appealing to God's character. Uh, a significant shift in his approach. We see this in the form of a question in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? And again in verse 13, you who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Uh, Habakkuk is starting with what he knows to be true about God. God is everlasting. He has no beginning or end. Psalm 90 verses 1 and 2, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Uh, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Uh, in an acknowledgment of God's eternality, Habakkuk is acknowledging that God sees more than he does because he's always existed. Christian, do you realize that because God has always existed, he will always have a better perspective on your life than you ever will? Because God has always existed, he has a 
better perspective on your life than you ever will. He knows the beginning and the end of your story. So when you come to him in prayer, remember that you are speaking to the eternal God. And he will answer according to his will and in light of what he knows, not only what you know. If he answers no or wait, he's doing it with more knowledge and wisdom than you have. But the real comfort is this. However he answers your prayers, he loves you. And in, his, in the glorious chapter of Romans chapter 8, uh, we learn that he is working all things for the good of those who love him. So don't mistake an unanswered or undesired answer to a prayer request as a change in God. God does not change. Trust his heart even when you can't see his hand. Church family, remind each other of this truth when we are tempted to forget. Another good theology example is found in the middle of verse 12, we shall not die. So here Habakkuk is appealing again to the covenant nature of God. This we is his way of saying, Lord, because you are everlasting and you have made a covenant with your people, we too will live on. We, because of you, will not die. So again, appealing to God's covenant nature. Habakkuk goes on to describe God as, as holy and the one with pure eyes. So in light of the wickedness of both Judah and Babylon, it's good or, or at a minimum growth, shows growth, that Habakkuk returns to the holiness of God. Uh, the temptation is to do what he did in the first four verses, right? And assume that because his circumstances are bad, that somehow God has changed. And sadly, this can actually be our experience as well. When things aren't going our way, when trials and temptations begin to press in on us, sometimes we, we shake our fists at God and cry out, why would you let this happen to me? You know, it's in times like these that we have to begin with what we know to be true about God. God is holy. So then how does God's holiness impact your present circumstances? Uh, does knowing that he is pure and that his purity will lead him to punish evil bring you comfort? How well do you do at recalling this truth, especially when the discipline is aimed at you? Now, I realize that I'm in the South now. And this illustration that I'm about to give you guys, some of it, some, for some of you, it may not land. But have you ever walked on an icy sidewalk in the winter? If you haven't, just go ahead and imagine with me. An icy sidewalk in the, in the winter. The snow has been shoveled, but there's still patches of ice everywhere. How do you walk? Well, if you're smart, you keep your head down, and you place your feet carefully on safe ground. Brothers and sisters, we must do the same spiritually. Your trial, your burden is a, is a slippery, spot, slippery spot. But surely, not all of your experience with the Lord is like this. A step on the places that aren't slippery. Step on the solid ground of the truth of what you know about God. He is holy. He is good. He is just. Friends, all other ground is sinking sand. The third example of good theology by Habakkuk is in his acknowledgement of God's sovereignty. 
the Lord had said, I'm going to raise up Babylon. And then Habakkuk confesses in verses 12b, O Lord, you have ordained them, them being Babylon, as judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. Ordained and established. The Lord did this. Habakkuk sees clearly, if anything is going to happen to the people of God, it will only be because of God. If anything good or bad is to happen to the people of God, it will only be because of God. Friends, this truth applies to us. We, the redeemed, nothing good or bad, happy or sad, reaches us without coming through the hands of our Heavenly Father. Name the trial. Cancer. Infertility. Broken relationships. Final, uh, financial struggle. Singleness. A pandemic. All of this is from the hand of our loving Lord. Consider Job, described in the Bible as blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil, yet he went through some of the worst trials known to man. I don't think there is any better picture in Scripture of how trials and temptations, even Satan himself, only come if the good Lord ordains them. Job 2, verse 10, shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? The lesson here is this, appealing to what we know of God, excuse me, appeal to what we know of God before we assume what he's doing or not doing. Appeal to what we know of God before we assume what he's doing or not doing. But there's more to learn from our brother Habakkuk's bad theology. Look at verses 13 and 14. In 13, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? And then in 14, an implied question here. Why do you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler? So Habakkuk, for the second time, is accusing the Lord of being idle. Not only that, but now he calls him silent and unjust in his choice to use wicked Babylon to, decide, to discipline his people. So Habakkuk is a little sidetracked here. Right? He's comparing Judah and Babylon's wickedness even after he has just confessed God to be holy. The Lord's disposition towards wickedness, it's not selective. Wherever wickedness is found, he will judge it in his time and in his way. And his temporary silence does not imply that his hands are not at work. In verse 14, we find Habakkuk's second question implied. Uh, Lord, why do you make mankind like the fish and crawling things, the lower creatures that have no ruler? In other words, Habakkuk is saying, God created mankind with, with no rulers and no judges, and as a result, sin continues to go unchecked and injustice prevails. And then Habakkuk goes even further, right? He elaborates on his charge against God by launching into this uh, aquatic metaphor in verses 15 and 16. Babylon being the fisherman and Judah being the fish. According to Habakkuk, Judah is caught, caught in Babylon's hook, in, in, in his net, in his dragnet. They, they're as good as dead. And as a result, verse 16, Babylon worships the means of capture, the net, the dragnet, the hook, and their might is their God. Habakkuk concludes his imagery with a question, verse 17. Is he then to 
keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? You, you know, this actually sounds a lot like the same question that he began with. Oh, Lord, how long? Right? How, how long will the wicked prosper? How long will your people be oppressed? Now, we're not given a time frame for how long Habakkuk waited to hear from the Lord. But we do learn here his disposition after he had prayed this prayer. Again, mixed with good and bad theology. Friends, Habakkuk is resolved to wait. Chapter 2, verse 1. I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. There it is, praying and waiting. Contrary to what some might think, those are not passive actions. Christian prayer and Christian waiting are active for Habakkuk and for us. Uh, we see evidence of this in our final verse. This imagery of a watch post or tower is meant to convey uh, a different place from where Habakkuk first started his prayer. There's a, a resolve here. He, he takes his stand. He stations himself, not in the market or around the masses, but instead up and away from the people. This was a place positioned high, uh, a watch post was, often on a wall of a city, uh, where a person could see far and wide. Friends, this is intentionality, right? He's, he's going, he's removing distraction to, to gain a better view. Habakkuk goes to this place to wait and see what the Lord will say and what I, or, or better rendered even he, will answer concerning my complaint. Friends, Habakkuk is not very different from us. He too had to wait. And he, too, had some good and bad theology. But what we all have in Christ is a good God who's committed to working in and through imperfect people for his glory. This is why we can trust his discipline down to the details of his way and his time. Aren't there examples of this in your own life? Think back on his past faithfulness. Uh, look at the history of his care for his people right here in the book of Habakkuk. He was good, was he not? So as we pray and wait, uh, may we humbly do both in trust because of who he is. The Lord disciplines his children in his time and in his way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice because of your